cancer is really only 10% genetic, 90% is environmental. And that's, that's extremely important to remember because, you know, these, these oncogenes or these cancer genes that we have are variably expressed. So it's not like if you have one of these oncogenes, they will be expressed and you will get cancer. That's that, that just doesn't equal, you know, one doesn't equal the other. If you have them and they're the, the right environment, environmental conditions are created around that, you will express that gene and that's when cancer develops. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta. This show is for those who want to optimize their health, maximize their genetic potential, and have some fun along the way. All of us have had a friend or loved one affected by cancer. In fact, approximately 40% of individuals in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. That is a huge number. Conventional medicine focuses a lot on screening methods for prevention, such as surgery, chemo, radiation, other types of things for treatment. But what is not discussed Enough is that you have the power to make change and a lot of control is in your hands in terms of prevention and treatment. Many people feel hopeless, but this certainly should not be the case. And today's topic is part two of our series in feeling empowered regarding cancer treatment and prevention. In that light, I'm excited to welcome today Dr. Diva Nagala, who is a physician who was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2014. Integrating a holistic and functional approach to his traditional treatment regimen, he beat the disease into remission and kept it there. In fact, he wrote a new book called From Doctor to Patient, Healing Cancer Through Mind, Body, and Spirit. And it takes reader, readers inside his remarkable journey through heartfelt narrative passages that highlight the importance of balancing the mind, body, and spirit for optimal health. Dr. Devan Nagula is a board-certified osteopathic physician and has extensive knowledge and training in integrative and functional medicine. Dr. Nagula grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, and his interest in medicine developed at an early age when he decided to follow his father's footsteps. Diva graduated from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at EVMS and a fellowship in interventional pain at Emory University. He opened a practice in rural South Georgia, as well as a surgical center in Georgia, where he performed cutting edge interventional procedures. Recently, Dr. Nagula trained in integrative medicine under Dr. Andrew Weil, and he's relocated to DC to be closer to his family and friends. He is committed to his passion for healthy lifestyles, and he believes most, most diseases that plague this country can be prevented and sometimes treated by positive health and lifestyle changes. Welcome, Diva. Hey, thanks, Ravi. Appreciate you having me on your show today. Absolutely. Happy to have you. So let's get, let's get into it. Can you just tell us about how your story began? Yeah. So um, in about 2000, at the end of 2012, I exited my practice. And so I was just going to take some time off before I decided to take on the next project or next adventure. And uh, around that time, I had gotten married and I was just living a really grand life in 2013. And towards the end of the year, I had actually noticed that there was some like cysts around both sides of my neck. Nothing was painful. I was feeling great. And I thought it was just some sort of dermatological issue. So I went to the primary care doctor and he took a look and he says, yeah, I don't think that those are cysts. Um, those appear to be just lymph nodes that are enlarged. 
So let's go take, let's go get a CAT scan of your head and neck and just see what's going on. And then, you know, after that, we'll also get some blood work and we'll see what's happening and then go from there. So I got some blood work done. Blood work looked pretty good. Um, I got the CT scan of the head and neck and my lymph nodes were extremely enlarged. Um, it just lit up like a Christmas tree. It was, um, and they even got slices of my axilla and they showed that there were some enlarged lymph nodes there. So at that point, it was like, what's the diagnosis? What's happening? What's the etiology of this? And so he thought it was best for me to go see an oncologist just to get the workup done. Um, nothing at that time showed that there was any definitive diagnosis. So I went to the oncologist, had a whole battery of tests, uh, lymph node biopsy, uh, more imaging studies. And um, uh, February uh, 12th of 2014 is when I got the diagnosis of uh, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Well, that, that must have been quite an ordeal to go through. And I appreciate you sharing that story with us. Um, was, is there any history of cancer in your family? Do you have any idea of how develop this diagnosis from like maybe a exposure environmental perspective? Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, there's a lot of theories. Um, I don't have any uh, cancer history in my family. So, uh, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is not something that's genetically predisposed. So I, it wasn't genetics. So for me, it was trying to figure out what was the etiology more so from, you know, uh, from a scientific curiosity perspective, but as well as understanding why so that I wouldn't be privy to those types of circumstances and um, and influences uh, in my health again. So I feel it's a it's a it's a combination of issues that that really caused me to have the cancer. Um, for me, at that point, it was about what I knew in my mind. It was let's figure out from a a physiological perspective. Let's figure out from um, you know uh, a mind perspective because those things are very controllable. Um, so I looked at um, my own physiological uh, health, and and it was evident that I was not eating very well. I was eating very poorly. Um, you know, I wasn't eating a full balanced meal. Everything was uh, fast, fast food, fast casual. Um, and you would think I would know better as a physician, but unfortunately, in medical school, medical school, they don't teach you anything about nutrition and the importance of of health or importance of diet. And so I would I would choose to eat, you know. Um, something from Subway versus McDonald's because I thought Subway would have a little bit more nutrition because there was offering more of, of vegetables and tomatoes and lettuce and your choice instead of having a burger at McDonald's. So that was my, that was my um, uh, belief in, in eating healthy. And um, unfortunately, it was years of this type of behavior. And, and that's the thing about cancer. It's the, the circumstances that lead to cancer isn't something that happens overnight. It's a cumulative of years and years and years of, of, of damage and issues uh, that, are, uh, that, that accumulate over time. And so for me, it was after I left, my, after I left high school, you know, I, I was on my own. And so it was years of just putting my body through crap, eating really badly. And that's only one facet of the problem. There's other facets of the issue too. It was about, you know, getting a regular set of exercise and, and uh, maintaining an optimal uh, uh, you know, regimen in, in exercise as well as nutrition. And for me, nutrition, I had to relearn what nutrition was. And it was not just about eating a balanced type of meal. It was more about eating something that was more organic. Uh, I, had to, I had to understand what that meant, um, eating things that were non-GMO, eating things that were um, you know, less uh, toxic to my system. And, and that was really important. Um, but I feel that that was one aspect of it. There was a whole nother aspect of it that was really more along the lines of 
um, psychological and mental health. Um, I was as an entrepreneur and many entrepreneurs can probably relate because we're so driven and we're so hard on ourselves. And for me, I was in a practice for, for almost 10 years where I was just driving, driving and grinding, grinding. So wasn't sleeping very well. I wasn't taking care of myself, didn't have community, um, and, and really just, just, um, didn't have any outlets. And so this was not only a decade of my life when I was in practice, but this was how we all are as physicians. We go through this rigorous process of, of doing really well in college. Then we have to grind and do really well in med school. Then we have the residency. And then, you know, those are years and years as you can relate to of training where we're not sleeping and, and we're just working really hard hours. And so then I, I can dial it back to childhood. And it was like, it was the parental influence of just grind, grind, grind and study. And so, and there wasn't any any kind of outlets um, that I was exposed to. It was just all very, very narrow-minded, one lens type of perspective of just do well in school. And so my parents were extremely hard on me. And and as as um, most people who are uh, 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 descendants of, of people who have immigrated from uh, to this country, um, can relate. And um, so I think it was just a combination of all these factors um, that really led to, it was basically, it was, it was just, a, a, I was ready to pop. And, and, and that essentially, in my mind, contributed to, to uh, the non-Hodgkin's the non lymphoma diagnosis. You know, as a result of all of what you discussed, and we'll discuss more of that in detail, you have, you're in remission and you're healthy and and, you know, I, I love that. And I, I really celebrate that. Um, but all the things that you mentioned sort of are, are additive qualities to uh, manifest this, this disease process. And it doesn't have to be necessarily cancer that's manifest in people, but other types of disease processes are manifested in people because of these types of lifestyle choices, because of lack of exercise, diet, you know, proper diet, nutrition, um, good psychological mental health, that type of thing, um, having good sleep at night. Um, and something to keep in mind for the listeners is that cancer is really only 10% genetic, 90% is environmental. And that's, that's extremely important to remember because, you know, these, these oncogenes or these cancer genes that we have are variably expressed. So it's not like if you have one of these oncogenes they will be expressed and you will get cancer. That's that it just doesn't equal, you know, one doesn't equal the other. If you have them and they're the, the right environment, environmental conditions are created around that, you will express that gene and that's when cancer develops. So really the focus and what you, you've alluded to is the focus is correcting all those behaviors. And once you correct those behaviors and you, um, basically focus on your health, you are, you are changing the, your physiologic environment such that, that, you know, those, those genes of the those negative influences aren't there and it creates healing. And, and, um, that's when you can, you know, obtain that type of help. So, um, can you let us know what happened after that diagnosis? Now that you explained sort of, you know, how that, how that occurred in you, what you, your thought process of that occurring, and you, you're diagnosed, uh, what happened after that? Yeah, so um, I, I had gone to three different physicians. Um, 
my the physician that I first saw that gave me the diagnosis was a private private practitioner, and um, I he he told me that I needed to go through a very very harsh course, a very aggressive course of chemotherapy, and um, this was like um, if if you're familiar with it, it's the R chop um, uh, regimen, which is very very potent, strong cancer uh, treatment. Um, I, I had a hard time believing that this was my only option because. I was feeling really good at that time and not to mention i just i wanted a second opinion so i went to sloan kettering um where they uh told me that i i was probably it was not in my best interest to have that type of aggressive chemo because i was so young i was 40 years old at the time and um he considered something else that was a little bit less aggressive but he said that um, because I was feeling well and I wasn't exactly um, showing any overt signs other than lymph nodes being enlarged, um, that he thought a watching and wait would be something that I would I would probably benefit from. You know, and the watching and wait is basically just doing nothing and um, and and just seeing if it would regress on its own. Um, and so during that time frame, I, I chose to opt for the watch and wait. I saw another opinion at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, and he said the same thing too. And it kind of dawned on me, I'm like, why are these university physicians saying watching and waiting is something that I should pursue versus going to this private practitioner who said, let's do the most aggressive uh, therapy. And then it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, this guy, you know, they had their own um, uh, infusion center. And so it was definitely, um, uh, you know, uh, it was more what was in it, what was in for him, you know, rather than what was in the best interest of the of the patient, and that kind of really disgusted me because that is the plight of a lot of patients who don't know any better, and it's unfortunate because they have a trust in physicians. That's a whole different story and a topic which I, I won't go there. But it's it's I'm glad I got second opinions. I'm and this is me as a physician that went this route, and I and I, um, and so you know the lesson here is just keep keeps getting opinions um and, and do your own education and, and really take control of this you know and and um be more empowered and not disempowered um but i digress and um for me it was the watching and waiting and so i studied i read i can just add to that um digression there um i mean that, that's a that's a very important point um and people don't necessarily realize that because they when they see a physician, they, they, they think that, Hey, look, this person has my best interest at heart. I will listen to anything they tell me. I think, you know, it is important to, to trust someone and believe in someone, but also do your own research, trust, but verify. Right. Um, that's why we have podcasts like this. So there's, there's many others out there. It's, it's important to understand what the treatment regimen is and, and what the side effects are. Um, and if it's right for you, um, and it's important to get a second opinion. I've, I mean, you know, as a, as a physician, um, you know, been in practice for many years, I have certainly seen different types of different clinicians practice in different ways and they're justified. You know, some may say, Hey, look, I'm conservative. I'm going to do this approach. And the others may say, uh, you know, I, I do want to hold back and not do this. And, you know, there's evidence pointing in both directions. Um, it may make sense in both directions. You can justify it either way. But that's where the art of medicine comes in, and that's where personal choice comes in, self-empowerment comes in, where you you make the decision, you help formulate that decision. So that's that's what we're, we're here for, you know, to educate all the listeners out there to, you know, these possibilities. But I appreciate you bringing that, that up. That's actually a really important point. Yeah. I, I respect that as well. Um, it's important to stay empowered, and not only in, in, 
your own health, but in life in general. Um, that's just a fundamental fact that I like to follow for myself. Yeah. Um, so, um, what I had done was I had done a lot of research and reading at that point, studying and, and just figuring out what I needed to do to optimize my health. So I had switched my entire diet. I threw everything in my closet out the window, out the, out the trash. Um, I had started to eat everything that was gluten-free. I, I didn't eat any more. Um, uh, I, I refrained from carbohydrates because I learned that when a person is diagnosed with cancer, you know, carbohydrates um, and sugar fuel the cancer. And this is not, not not something that's taught. And so I eliminated all forms of sugar. And I basically was just eating any vegetables and, and protein um, that were organic and grass-fed. Um, that was extremely important. The transition to that diet was extremely difficult because my body and my microbiome was craving just this fast food, fast casual, because that's what I'd eaten for so many years. So for me to be able to switch was very difficult, but after about three to four weeks, you know, I had shifted my microbiome and it started to accept this new diet and it started to crave the fruits, the vegetables. Um, and of course, the fruits that I was eating was very low glycemic and, and same with the vegetables. And then I wasn't working at the time, so I didn't have the stress of going into work um, and, and endure all that. It was just really being able to take care of myself. I had another, I, I was able, I um, had a second home in Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains. So um, we decided to live up there for, um, um, you know, during the, um, from the spring season to the early fall. And it was nice to being in the mountain air, did a lot of hiking, just was able to just get in one with mother nature and just really be able to take care of myself. And then, um, it was October when it was time to go back to Florida when I started having this back pain and the back pain was pretty intense and is radiating into my groin and as a healthcare practitioner everyone knows it's that's that's a sign of either urinary infection or you have kidney stones and because i had cancer the likelihood of, was high that it was kidney stones just because of the high cell turnover and the buildup of uric acid so um that's what i thought it was my oncologist said let's go ahead and, and get your scans done early um because i was scheduled for my re regular scans at that time and the scan showed that my cancer had uh, grown aggressively um, what previously was, um, you know, one centimeter size lymph nodes, typically these lymph nodes are like um, in millimeters. And so they were enlarged to begin with, which we know that, but they had grown to like these masses. So they, they, they grew so much that you couldn't even tell the individual lymph nodes from one another because they were all grown so much and they coalesced into this mass all over my body. And he said, we needed to start uh, chemo yesterday. So that's when I started the chemotherapy. And at that time, it was just a, a beginning of a whole new therapies. And then for me, it was a whole new discovery of issues that I had no idea that was bothering me for so long. Um, it was the loss of control that really crushed me because I'd always been an individual that was always in control of my destiny and, and everything. And for me, that I had to surrender and yield to therapies that was beyond my control was a huge, huge issue for me that I didn't even understand. Looking back on it, I understand now, but at the time I, I just, I, I didn't know what was happening. I was, I was, and so at that point I went to a deep depression um, because I had lost all hope and I had been a very successful person to, up to that point where everything that I set my mind to do, I was able to accomplish it. And this was the first time in my entire life where I put in a hundred percent of effort and, and I didn't get anything out of it. So it's a big lesson that I had learned at an early time in my life. And I'm glad that I did learn that lesson 
it, it wasn't until years later where I started to understand um, what that was all about from a uh, spiritual and a mental um, uh, mindset and framework. Yeah. Well, wow, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine the intensity of that, that situation. Um, so it sounded like after you got the diagnosis, when you were in the watch and wait period, you started taking some steps and in, in that, in, in the functional medicine realm, um, you know, and there's, there's basically five basic, you know, tenets of functional medicine or root causes of disease and it's sleep, diet, um, exercise, um, stress and um, toxic exposures. So, um, did you, did you take all those steps? Did you try to eliminate all those things from your? Yeah. I mean, it was, and that was a huge part of it was eliminating toxicities, right? So one of the things that I learned at the time, um, in environmental toxin known as glyphosate, which is prevalent in our foods and in our environment is a huge, huge correlation with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in fact, right now there are these huge lawsuits that are against Monsanto Bayer that are by plain, uh, that are by defendants who have been exposed to uh, Monsanto, I mean, to glyphosate for a long period of time. And these are the people that have uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I used to be a golfer and I was playing a lot of golf, you know, on the weekends, things like that. And so was this contributory? Sure. But then what about all the foods that I was eating that was GMO and all those GMO foods, you know, even wheat in itself is ridden with glyphosate. And so it was, it was, it was a big shock to my system understanding how much of our society was ridden was was plagued with these types of toxins I and mean, everywhere you look and then you realize that you know um things that we use personal care products i mean there's over you know for a female there's over 110 products or, or chemicals that's on their body that they put on um, before they leave the home to go to work every morning for men, it was like 85, um, you know, uh, known, known toxins that people are, that you're wearing. And this goes from shampoo to deodorant, to soap, you know, to shaving cream, I mean, all of it. So it was eliminating all of that. And, and, and so I was like, if I had a fighting chance and I had to do that. And so I went really deep in, in understanding, you know, what I was exposed to. And that's why I chose to go into the environment of the mountains versus the city, because you're less likely to be um, to have these types of exposures. Um, I mean, it's everywhere, but at that point, it was about minimi minimizing it. And yeah. then also a big thing for me was was um, how do I optimize my current um, my my supplement regimen? And one of the biggest things for me was vitamin D. And so being outside as often as I could it was the best way to optimize vitamin D levels. And uh, my vitamin D was extremely low and I was living in Florida and I was working at, you know, in Florida where sunlight is 330 days of the year. And so my, my vitamin D levels was, um, was below the low range. It was 19 nanograms per deciliter. And the therapeutic is between 20 and, and, and hundred or 20 and 80, depending on where you're looking. So, and I knew immediately that vitamin D is important because it has sub, it has 10, it, it is related to 10% of our immune functioning and our gene functioning. And so without optimum levels of vitamin D, your immune system is going to be compromised. Um, and so for me, it was, the, that was the most important thing to do. That was the easiest thing was get sunlight and optimize my vitamin D levels. Um, I started to also really look into my gut um, and I started taking probiotics. I also started taking colostrum. 
Um, and these are just simple things that I, I, I felt that would really affect me in, in a profound way um, that was going to help my immune system um, fight whatever was happening in my body at the time. Excellent. And, and you know, there, there, you've, you've got, talked about a lot of topics and it's, there's not just not enough time to delve into each, each one of those. Um, but something that's important for the listener to know is it's not just like a low vitamin D that would cause this diagnosis. It's not just glyphosate that would cause this. It's a combination of all these things that are put together that would you know, result in, in sort of just generalized inflammation leading to um, this, you know, these types of diagnoses. So what Dr. Nagula is talking about is eliminating these in a, in a stepwise way so that you are creating an environment of health in your body um, so that you can, you can cure yourself or potentially help in the process of curing yourself uh, from disease. Uh, so that, that's, that's very important. And I, I just, just one um, reference I want to give folks is, is um, the Environmental Working Group. You can Google that. And that's a great way to look at the different products that you're using and um, decrease your toxic burden because they have a list of all the products and like alternatives that are less toxic for you. So that's a, that's a really good resource. For those. Also, don't forget about the resource for your um, the Dirty Dozen in terms of foods and yes. your Clean 13. They also have that list and they update that every year. Absolutely. Um, excellent. Okay, so so basically you, you made all these changes um, and um, you ended up having to take chemotherapy and that's, you know, you know, look, the, you do the best you can and sometimes they don't work and you have to use the traditional approach uh, or the conventional approach rather. And that's, and that's fine. That, that's what, you know, that you make those decisions. So, so what happened after that? So after that, I had to really um, go through chemo and the regimen consisted of a day and a half of chemotherapy uh, infusion therapy for um, a, a month for six months. And um, the first day was an eight-hour therapy set, what was a chemo session, and the next day was immunotherapy for for four to six hours. So the combination um, was essentially necessary to, um, you know, cr you know, kill the cancer cells essentially, and then you know, um, any remnants of the cancer in my immune system was going to be taken care of as well. So it was really a one-two punch. Um, it was a traditional you know, chemotherapy regimen of. Uh, bendamustine and an immunotherapy uh, uh, called rituxan. And these were things that were really, and, and, I, and I had also checked with different physicians whom I consulted with who all thought that that particular line of therapy was the best, even though it hadn't been used um, for, it had been used for over a decade, but they had, did not have long-term studies. Long-term studies were just coming out with the combination of the two. And it looked promising for many of the physicians who had looked at the research. So I was, I was, um, confident this was going to help, but I just did not know how this was going to help my, uh, was how, what kind of an impact it was going to have on my body. Unfortunately, at that time, I didn't know much about integrative medicine and functional medicine. I just did some research just based on diet and supplementation that I thought was going to help my immune system from a generalized perspective. Um, it was at the end of my fourth or fifth month of chemo is when I discovered integrative medicine as a field. And then I applied, um, to Dr. Andy Wiles program. Um, and I, and I, and I fortunately got in, which is, you know, uh, what I decided to do after I got into remission. But during this whole time that I was in, uh, going through chemo, it was, um, really a fight of, of, of my ego. Um, my ego was just, could not get, um, 
could not go through, the, through this process. Um, I ended up getting um, into uh, uh, we, my wife at the time and I were having issues, and it, it un unfortunately ended up where we separated during while I was going chemo, and you know, so I was really um, alone. And um, you know, we'll probably talk into this a little bit later, but you know, I realized later that um, loneliness, which is what I'd, I had had um, under, I'd probably gone through that process when I was going through chemo, but loneliness doesn't necessarily mean to mean alone. It's being, um, it's having the ability to be able to sync with another person, to have a bond with an individual, um, have community and, um, loneliness. What I had discovered during my research is as much of a risk factor for mortality, um, when compared to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or having a diagnosis of diabetes. Yeah. So that's, that's really huge. Yeah, that I mean, hundred percent, absolutely true. In fact, there's a there's a great TEDx talk about this Harvard researcher that ha that followed two cohorts, two cohorts of individuals, a Harvard student group, and then another group from the inner city, and they followed them over time and looked at you know various risk factors and disease, and they found just as you mentioned that relationships and close relationships were the best at preventing. Um, long-term disease and, and consequences of that. So um, that's so important. And, and um, you know, just as you mentioned, you could have friends and people around you, but still have that feeling of loneliness inside. I mean, that's, how did you deal with that? The time I, I didn't know, I just, I, I actually um, did everything on my own. I, I mean, I shut everyone out of my life, um, friends, family, I just, I, I did everything on my own. I figured this is what I had to do in order to survive. And what was happening was, is that I had to have anger as a source of fuel to get me through the day because I would not let myself go into this, oh, woe is me type of mentality, go into this depressed affect. Um, I had, and, and so as you know, you know, anger and depression are on the same spectrum, just on opposite ends. It's the same underlying emotion, and that's depression and sadness, which I would not let myself feel. So um, this is how I got through those uh, those those months of chemotherapy, and um, which is you know which leads me to the first page of my book, which I write. You know, the worst day of my life was not the day that I got the diagnosis, but the worst day of my life was when I was told I no longer had cancer, because that was my identity. And once I lost my identity of cancer. And I had nothing, I had nothing to, I, I had no identity because I had lost my identity as a husband, as a physician, because I was no longer was working. And then the only identity I had was a cancer uh, patient. And once I lost that, I, I literally was at rock bottom. Oh, wow. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, you think the complete opposite. You think that would be like the happiest moment. But so what happened at that point? Can you, can you elaborate on that? Like, how, how did you, how'd you deal with that loss of identity? Right. So at the time I didn't, again, this is all looking back on what I was going through. And um, for me, it, it took me about a, a few months to regain um, some composure. And um, as I mentioned in my book, it was really a rekindling of an old relationship with my um, trainer that I happened to see um, in the parking lot of a grocery store. And he asked me how I was doing. And I said I was doing better. I was it was just trying to regain some physical um, function. You know, I'd lost a lot of weight. I I just um, you know muscle mass, and I was just very deconditioned. And so he asked if I was ready to start working out again. I said, heck yeah! And so that that was when we started to really it, it was a, a start to 
transformation of myself in from a in a, in a more of a uh mental and physical mindset because number one i started to like hang out with an individual that i so badly needed to do i needed camaraderie i needed a bond from a friend and then i my body just needed exercise um and so i needed to get back into the shape that i was in because i wanted to look at myself in the mirror and just like have a sense of respect for what i had gone through and you know and i also wanted to take care of myself because i didn't want to go into i wanted to stay in remission and not have a relapse okay so um you know what you said reminds me of of a quote and I, i'm not getting this quote exactly right but it's something that tony robbins says very often he says the most powerful force in the human psyche is staying true to your identity and how you define yourself um because um, just as you mentioned if you define yourself as a as a father a physician or you know a cancer patient or whatever it may be your entire focus is there and when you lose your identity and that's how you define yourself. You lose yourself in that process. So that's why it's so important to identify yourself in healthy ways, um, to identify yourself as, you know, um, someone that's, that's powerful, um, someone, some, something that, that encourages you to move forward in a, in a positive way and a positive light. Um, so you mentioned for yourself, the trainer, was that person to kind of introduce you to that how did that all unfold so it was just um as i mentioned it was it was just a meeting it was just to happen to be something that um i an individual whom i ran into at the grocery store uh parking lot and we just started working out your, again how did that unfold your 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 identity i mean how, how did how so develop? it was right um the identity that ensued after that was more again i was like i had to become empowered um, at the, the whole time I had was I was in a disempowered state, you know, and so it was like this was the first opportunity where I could have a sense of empowerment. Um, and that was important for me because I had lost my identity um, to everything. And so taking the first steps and started to like, you know, exercise and and that was a, a good moment for me because that was I was able to take back some of my life, you know, my, the life that I had lost, I, I was able to take back a bit. Okay. And then did you did you transform your identity in someone like a maybe a cancer survivor or you know a physician so, how did that Yeah happen? um then at, the, at that point it was then of maintaining my identity it was maintaining myself in remission so then at that point was I I I got into that fellowship program and then it was for me it was like okay so maybe this whole ordeal with cancer was some was was basically a way of me having to transition from the what medicine that I used to practice into more of a functional medicine mindset. And so then it was implementing all these strategies that I was learning through my fellowship to myself to stay into remission. Um, and then that's when the real journey began for my, for my health and wellness. You also mentioned to me when we spoke before that um, you spent about a year in, in, in the world of psychedelic therapy um, and you felt that that helped. Could you, elaborate on that further yeah so um to preface that um we have to understand what i was going through at the time when i i decided to move to dc uh because i was no longer married and i wasn't working in florida anymore so i was like let me just move back home um and then i had my parents nearby i had some friends that were nearby and i wanted to establish community as i knew that um that was going to be important for 
my transformation and my and for me to stay into remission is to have that community and have that bond. Um, and then it was also a discovery of mindfulness. And this is through um, uh, learning through my fellowship that mindfulness was essential. And this is something that I did not have a practice of. I had done some meditation for a long time um, through transcendental meditation, and I did it on and off for years. And I unfortunately, I didn't do this during the time that I was suffering from cancer. And so it was me learning what this was to me. Me was more about getting into a um, learning to be more in a parasympathetic state because I had lived an entire life of being in fight or flight, which is another huge risk factor for chronic disease, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And so understanding that was huge because then I had to seek modalities of regulating my nervous system. So for me, it was, how do I do that? And meditation was not my thing because I could not sit there um, and I'd have the monkey mind keep going, going and going. And then I would be really hard on myself saying, you stupid, you're not able to do this simple thing. And, you know, it was that I was learning that that was not the best thing for me. Not only that, but then having that mindset of being hard on myself. That was very important because I've always been hard on myself growing up and learning that that was a contributory factor of me having health issues because I was so hard on myself. And um, it was all, it was a combination of all those things during my fellowship that really allowed me to learn more about mindfulness and being gentle on myself. And that ultimately led to um, my first in, uh, experience with psychedelic medicine. And at the, during this time when I moved to DC, I, I, I still wasn't in community to the degree that I wanted to be. I joined a networking group, um, and this networking group was all about self-improvement. Um, um, it was also about you know, uh, entrepreneurship, but not always about making money. It was more about connection and just um, bettering yourself as a human being and being of service to others. And so this was a huge thing that I wanted to partake. I wanted to be also service to others. And I, I had um, this person who was the head of this uh, of group, entrepreneurial group, had asked me if I wanted to join this this uh, um, ceremonial group healing using psychedelics. I didn't know about anything of this at the time. Psychedelics was not on my radar. I said no twice, and then the third time I said yes, and I was more obligatory than than just because I wanted to improve myself. And so um, it was this experience that really shaped and my 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 well being, my spiritual my spirituality. Um, and it shaped how I practice medicine and how I view of health and wellness um, to this day. Um, and I write about this in my book uh, about how how uh, it it really shaped and impacted um, the person that I have become. That's amazing. That's so powerful. And and there's more and more data coming out that demonstrates the power of psychedelic therapy in the right situation. I mean, there's you know I I can't remember the name of this. Um, documentary I was watching on Netflix, you, you may know, but uh, they were talking about using psychedelic therapy in hospice patients and, and how you know, one treatment of psilocybin, in fact, um, allowed patients, hospice patients, to just feel comfortable with the idea of death. Um, and uh, it, was, it was very powerful. So there's, you know, there, there's so many different treatment uh, situations which this this could be certainly beneficial as 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 you've experienced yourself. And in fact, I'd love to have you on again to talk about um, psychedelic therapy in more detail. Um, 
uh, you know, in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, it's a whole different topic, um, and we just basically broached the subject. But the study that you were talking about is a Johns Hopkins study, and um, it's a very well-known study in the field of psychedelics of how people who had cancer um, were able to have this experience of psilocybin and had shared to everyone that it was the most enlightening experience of their lives and it allowed them to surrender to death and be peace and, and have and become and be at peace with it um and it was very powerful for all these individuals who participated in in the study wonderful well thank you so much um diva it was wonderful having you and i really encourage everyone to check out diva's book from doctor to patient healing cancer through mind body and spirit um Another reference that I mentioned before is, is Dr. Keith Block's book on integrative oncology. A lot of what Dr. Nagula mentioned in his, um, you know, his, his journey to healing and health is explained in this book, and it's explained in detail with references. So those of you that are interested in having those references and understanding everything in, in a lot of depth can check out this book. I'm sure there are many others. That's one I'm familiar with. Um, Diva, any other references you can recommend to folks? Um, that's a good one that you mentioned. Um, any books? Um, so I would I would check out some other uh, topics like on vitamin D and and um, any books about um, functional integrative medicine. So Dr. Andy Weil has a whole lot of books about just um, um, how to live life from uh, from a uh, integrative lifestyle. Excellent. Um, and then one last one um, is Volter Longo's book on the fasting mimicking diet. And there's some there's some data out there that fasting during these periods of of chemotherapy even can have a positive effect. Uh, another book to check out. So um, thank you again, Diva. I'm excited to have you again on the show. I'm sure our listeners got a ton out of your experience, and I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing all this with us. It was it was very enlightening. Thank you, Ravi. It was my pleasure to be on your show today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.